you're going to have multiple arrows in your quiver. You're going to be able to go to an operating partner and say, do you need core plus capital? Because that has never been available to you in the middle market before. And if so, that is what an MD or a VP would be able to source transaction opportunities. And do you have value-add opportunistic transactions? We can do those too. And then over time, we built on a core debt business. And, and so we could, we could be a one-stop shop capital provider or solution provider for middle market joint venture operating partners. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Debbie Harmon and Anar Chudgar from Artemis Real Estate Partners. I was live in their office in Bethesda, Maryland with Debbie on November 16th with Anar zooming in from their office in New York. Artemis is now a 10 billion AUM real estate investment manager focused on middle market real estate investments across the equity and debt risk spectrum. And they work largely through a deep network of emerging managers the majority of which are led by women and people of color. The firm was founded at the beginning of the GFC by Debbie and Penny Pritzker to take advantage of distressed times and raise capital as a women-led business, themselves then an emerging manager. Debbie was well accustomed to finding opportunity in times of distress, something we're returning to in this market from her time as number two at the J.E. Robert Companies then the leading asset manager for distressed real estate for the RTC, where I then worked during the SNL crisis. We cover a lot of topics on the show. Two of the headlines for me are first, what they call the force multiplier effect of their providing capital generally to emerging managers, but specifically to companies led by women and people of color. Debbie and Anara talk about Artemis's work with our mutual friends Kem Bacon from Railfield and Tammy Jones from Basis Investment Group, each of which Artemis helped fund their initial growth. Check out my Leading Voices conversation with Tammy in the archives. I interviewed her back in September of 2020. The second topic, which I do not think was intended as a core discussion topic, is Artemis's practice of having co-heads. Debbie co-heads the company with her long-term partner, Alex Gilbert, and Anara is co-president with another of the founders of Artemis, Richard Banjo. That co-concept will also come up in our next interview with First Washington President Daniel Radek, but I believe is a great model for resilience and succession planning. It's Thanksgiving time, and I'm currently in Washington, D.C. with my wife, Diane, who does get a call out in the episode from both Debbie and Anar and my two daughters for the holiday. I do some memory lane each time I come to DC since I lived here for 20 years. And also this week visited with one of my formative mentors in the real estate business, Ken Becker. In these times of economic uncertainty in our business, continued actually terrifying politics, war in both Ukraine and the Middle East with again terrifying ramifications. It's important to remember for me the blessings of my wonderful family, and a career that gives me continued joy, challenge, and impact, and the opportunity to bring you these ongoing conversations on Leading Voices. My many thanks for these blessings and opportunity amidst our complicated world. I hope that you're enjoying the show. As always, please share this and your favorite episodes of Leading Voices with your friends and colleagues. If you have a few minutes here during the holidays, please rate the podcast on your podcast app. 
If you're not a subscriber, please do follow the show. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn and comment on the episode via my posts. If you have comments or questions on the show or want to learn more about how ZRG can help your organization in your human capital needs, feel free to email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Debbie and Anar. Debbie and Anar, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate, and thanks so much for being on the show. We've been planning this show for a long time, uh, almost since I started the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here together with Debbie. Anar, you're uh, on video in New York. I'm in D.C., and um, we have a lot to talk about today. It's a deep moment of transition in the commercial real estate marketplace. We want to talk about the short-term dislocation, but also some long-term secular changes that are in the marketplace. We want to talk about your fund and your business. We want to talk about each of you. And so we have a lot to chat about. And why don't each of you briefly introduce yourselves so that the audience knows the differential between your voices, especially. Debbie, you go first. Sure. I am Debbie Harmon, co-founder and co-CEO of Artemis Real Estate Partners. Cool. Anar? Anar Chedgar, and I am co-president of Artemis Real Estate Partners. Very wonderful. So, one of you take it. What is Artemis? What do you do? What's your AUM? What's your business? Well, I'll start. Today, we manage, it's going to be a big year for Artemis. We will hit $10 billion of AUM across the risk spectrum, and both we invest across product type and geography in the U.S. We also invest, when I say risk spectrum, we do value-add opportunistic, core plus, core, and across debt and equity. Mm -hmm. We have made, in, since our first fund, which was 2011, we've made about 300 investments. We've realized more than half, and 90% of our realizations have been at or above their target returns. Wonderful. And is that in a fund vehicle, multiple fund vehicles? And remember, and I know you because of your Emerging Managers Program, which is, I think, not the whole business, but talk about the different vehicles that get to uh, those investors. Sure. So that macro stat of realizations and performance was across all vehicles. We have about 15 vehicles. We did start, and the reason why you, you know me because of that is we started, we were an emerging manager, right? We were a um, startup diverse firm in, in September of 2009. And at the time, you know, there were 476 real estate private equity funds. Like, why did you need another one? Mm -hmm. And our vision was um, to become the leading capital provider of choice across the risk spectrum to establish diverse and emerging joint venture operating partners in the middle market. And that didn't exist. Um, and it, it came from a lesson I had learned before the, you know, before before starting Artemis, which was don't be a one-trick pony. Mm -hmm. That um, we could provide the best value proposition to our joint venture operating partners if we could be one-stop shop capital for them. And when we started out and we raised our first fund, at the same time, believe it or not, we raised Core Plus Capital uh, separate account. And um, we, it's a bit of a longer story and, and you, may, you may get there, but we thought it would be pretty easy to raise our first fund. We were mm -hmm. going to be our largest investor. We set out to raise, you know, 300 million. We were going to put up 50 million of, of GP equity. And that wasn't the case. It took 225 meetings to find 11 investors that would wow. support us in that first fund. And when we saw how hard it was, 
for us, where we had 25 years experience and the only thing we were emerging at was actually being emerging, mm -hmm. that why not build a business that provided institutional access to capital at a lower cost that didn't exist before, middle market, mm -hmm. core plus capital, to diverse and emerging managers. We've bought close to 10 billion of gross purchase price and close to 5 billion of equity with diverse and emerging joint venture operating partners. And when you say middle market, you're talking about size of deal, not location. It's kind of size of deal and niches, or is it really just size of deal, size of check? It's more of size of equity check and total transaction uh, price. And we just see more volume in that space. Also, as I said, less efficiency, therefore better for um, more attractive pricing for Artemis. So that would be an equity check. Our target in our fund too is equity check, 20 to 60 million, but we would do a multi-asset portfolio of 250 million or 300 million or mm -hmm. a, a joint venture that we may allocate 150 million to a programmatic joint venture, 200 million to a program jo programmatic joint venture. So the middle market is under the Blackstones, the right. Brookfields, the larger Right. Um, who used to have to buy office buildings because they came and you probably you couldn't wouldn't because those were huge, huge exactly. checks. Exactly. So we were saved a little bit in being in the middle market. Hundred percent. Smart and lucky. Yeah. I don't know which, exactly. but we'll we'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. We'll take both. We'll take both. I think of you as not yourself an emerging manager, although you were when you started, but I think of you supporting the emerging yes, manager. Exactly. And how right. much of the ten billion was done directly and how much through partners, so I get it just that sense of Sure. Anar, you want to take that? Yeah. So over 90% of what we've done has been through partners. But Deb raised really good points. And our emerging manager approach was really through that experience of our fund one. And after experiencing how challenging it would be for minority and women-owned firms is how we kind of thought of the genesis of the EM platform. And it really goes in line and goes hand in hand with the purpose part of what we do to advance diversity not only at Artemis, but throughout our whole real estate talent ecosystem. And we do that through our EM platform. And so we've created a dedicated platform specifically, intentionally investing with emerging and diverse operating partners. No silos in our team, no silos. Everyone shares in the success of all of our vehicles, which has never been done before. We don't believe it's ever been that before. Unpack what you just said. So no silos, everyone shares in the success. If you have a partner, they share in their deal. They don't, there's a silo right. with a partner. Right. Are you talking internally on your team? There's no silos. What's that mean? There's no silos in our, internally in our team. So our entire team shares the same culture and focus in how we invest. So I'll give you a specific example. When we started Fund One and investing in core plus capital is a dream, mm -hmm. right? And we just thought if we could raise a fund one, that would be incredible. And so the promote was allocated to all of the internal team mm -hmm. for fund one. When we were able to, in that same year, raise a similar size bucket of capital for core plus diverse and emerging managers, we basically went back to everyone and said, we're going to share in the internal promote across the team in mm -hmm. the core plus and in the value add and opportunistic. And you as a team member are not going to be siloed to just deploy value add and opportunistic capital. You're going to have multiple arrows in your quiver. Uh -huh. You're going to be able to go to an operating partner and say, do you 
need core plus capital because that has never been available to you in the middle market before. And if so, that is what an MD or a VP would be able to source transaction opportunities. And do you have value-add opportunistic transactions? We can do those too. Mm-hmm. And then over time, we built on a core debt business. And, and so we could, we could be a one-stop shop capital provider or solution provider for middle market joint venture operating partners. And, and that, was the, mm-hmm. that was the thesis. You have a programmatic relationship with those partners, so it's not one-off deals although I assume you'll do one-off deals with anybody, but with the people that are in your stable, they're deep relationships. How do you pick those relationships? How do you underwrite the strength of their platform? And then do they graduate one day? Yes, that's what we're most proud of, actually. But I think, I actually think, Anar, you should, you might want to start there, given your, given your history. Well, I wanted also to put a fine tooth comb into what we've done and accomplished because it lends into how we think about EMs and the success we've had with all of our EM partnerships. But Matt, since 2011, across the firm, we've transacted with over 95 emerging managers, Hmm. of which 40% are diverse. Transactions with these partners is approximately $10 billion. So that is quantitative data to show you the breadth and depth of our kind of our activity with our diverse and emerging partners. So my experience in the EM space starts back in 2010, where I helped start a business at GCM Grosvenor, which was the real estate business at GCM Grosvenor, which was 100% focused on investing with diverse and emerging managers. We do not have a double promote. We do that in a joint venture structure, which we believe is pretty differentiated. What's the difference between a joint venture structure and a double promote? What's that mean? Or at the end of the day, what does that look like? A double promote in market context, what mm-hmm. most of the market believes that to be, is a fund of funds model. Mm-hmm. And that fund of funds model, not only are you charging a fee and a promote on, the, on your vehicle, but then you're charging another fee and promote at the underlying fund, and then you're charging another fee and promote uh, with a partner, with mm-hmm. a JV. So for at Artemis, we have a fund level fee and promote, and then we're doing joint, then we're doing joint venture partnerships with our emerging and diverse partners. So I think what Nana was trying to say in the, in the beginning was when she started at Grosvenor, they had a fund of funds model only. Right. And they invested with us uh-huh. on behalf of their institutional clients in Artemis Fund 1. It was our experience and how difficult it was for us to raise money that made us think, well, there's a business need out here. I mean, all, we have these large institutions that want to access new managers, but they don't have the, the staff or, mm-hmm. or these managers are often, you know, flying under the radar screen, I say, of institutional capital. So what we did in our emerging manager program mm-hmm. was basically f- fill a void, create a program that said, you know, historical emerging manager programs, the they were thought of as if you're smaller and you're and you're emerging, you must be higher risk, mm-hmm. and therefore you should go out on the development spectrum and generate twenty five percent returns developing in Anacostia or Harlem, mm-hmm. and and instead we said, no, why, why would you do that? Why wouldn't we focus on being recap capital? Why wouldn't we focus on less risk on the asset, 
more stable asset, and we will incubate, to your mm-hmm. earlier question, the joint venture operating partner and provide services and support and access to capital um, even beyond whoever, uh, whatever institutions were giving us the capital um, to partner with them. And so we did do programmatic joint ventures. And we did, our goal was that those managers would ultimately graduate. Mm-hmm. And they would they may graduate to other capital that we introduced them to. They may graduate to their own separate account. They may graduate to their own fund. Mm-hmm. And we have examples of like ex- ex- extraordinary joint venture operating partners that have gone on to graduate and are very successful today. I have so many questions about this. So w- one is I'm remembering when the Emerging Manager Program came out, two companies, I'm specifically remembering Panatoni and Alliant, Alliance, which is a multifamily merchant builder, both were considering themselves emerging managers. And I'm like, Panatoni, you're not an, sorry if the Panatoni people hear this and are offended, but they've been in the business forever and ever. So that to me didn't feel like emerging, but a minority woman owned business who didn't, wasn't yet a household name is emerging. So did you have both kinds? How did that work? So you had to have less than $2 billion of equity under management raised Mm -hmm. and less than four institutional vehicles. So for example, I'm not sure of the history of Panatoni. I know them today, but historically, if they had raised capital from high net worth individuals or other types of capital sources, they would not be considered, they would still be considered a emerging manager. So that was the true market definition, emerging manager. And we've tended to focus on the earlier stage, uh-huh. emerging managers. Another uh-huh. reason why that's how you associated with us, because not many people were doing that. There were groups like Grosvenor who were focused on those people that already had funds. Mm-hmm. Our program was focused on, back to Anar's point, of um, programmatic joint ventures mm-hmm. with best-in-class local Sharpsuiters. So. Okay, so let's talk about that. Well, one question, okay. two questions before that. One, Grosvenor, just so we have some clarification here. This is not the British Grosvenor, right? <laughs> Very good question. Not the British Gro- okay. Grosvenor. That is why we say it's GCM Grosvenor. <laughs> okay, cool. We'll allow that one to go without digging in on that one. And then the second question is, and now I want to talk about the partners in a moment, but the capital that's coming in for this, are they looking for a higher return from you because there's some perceived different risk in this or not? And then also, is there an ESG goal? Why do they care? Okay, so two things. One, and I can think about the ESG goal while I answer the first one, which is we intentionally built a program mm-hmm. that, prov- that, that targeted a lower risk-adjusted return. And so that we could build the track record of mm-hmm. the joint venture operating partner, and then they could use that track record to launch a fund. Mm-hmm. And so we focused on core plus capital, which at the time was in 2011 was a net eight. Mm-hmm. Um, that's gone up over time, but um, core plus was a lower risk. We, we identified the asset could have one risk, but the goal of the institutional investor and ourselves was to use this capital use the use the tra- use the capital to build the track record and the track record to grow exponentially and attract more capital uh-huh. and like a venture capital fund because <laughs> these are do do you help do you have secret sauce here to help them manage better in those assets and de-risk their 
behavior as newbies or something right. like that. I mean, most of these local operating partners were highly experienced. Mm-hmm. They knew what they were doing. They were very good at what they were doing. They just didn't have the capacity or the team to access institutional capital. So you could think of us as a bridge. A venture, you could think of us as a bridge. Venture capital, you typically take equity in the company. Mm-hmm. We were not taking equity in the company. We were joint venture capitals, and ours says no different than what Blackstone or anybody else does when they provide Angel Gordon joint venture operating capital. We were just focusing in the middle market on a segment that was underserved. And that segment, so it was really for them to have access to capital, not your brains, because their brains were pretty good to begin well, we with. Would, our brains would apply to um, how could we help them to institutionalize. To learn how to report, to learn how to work with those yeah, capital or partners. models or present or use our many investors that came into our first fund. Mm-hmm. Into, we, would, we would bring... Every year we still do this. We bring an emerging manager to our investor conference, and we have them present. When I was an operating partner a long, long time ago, the capital would say, no, no, you have to stay away from my investors. We take a completely different approach. Our goal is not only to do well by our own investors, but to expand the ecosystem of diverse and emerging operating partners and do everything we can to help them to be successful. Cool. Then, Anar, I think you were going to answer the second part of the question, which if I could remember, the train here was about like the ESG or the S requirements of the capital to come to you to do this. Right. And I, as I said earlier in my conversation, we've done $5 billion of equity with emerging partner, operating partners, of which 40% of those are diverse. Mm-hmm. So that goes to the question of, of ESG. You know, we believe we are 51% MWAB ownership from top to bottom. So we continue to believe in that force multiplier perspective. So we believe in diversity perspective of thought. And quite frankly, access to capital, that diversity of thought and perspective will equate to better risk-adjusted returns. So, you know, we have done business with over 120 joint venture operating partners. I will say that there was intentionality behind our ESG approach and our, specifically our S. I would say ESG allowed us to really broaden our perspective and our investment strategy. And so, and you'll see that in our performance of our investments. Mm-hmm. And tell a couple stories of diverse partners who you've worked with who would not have had access to capital that the major the Prudentials and J.P. Morgans of the world might not have ventured with, but you did make that choice to venture with them and how that then played out. I'll start with one example, and I think Deb can chime in on another. So one example is Ken Bacon of Railfield Partners. Good example. I love Ken. (laughs) We all love Ken. He's a great guy. We've done many transactions with Ken and and Railfield. Ken is a Bethesda, Maryland-based real estate investment firm focused on market rate and affordable multifamily properties. Prior to co-founding Railfield, speaking of emerging managers, Ken spent two plus decades at Fannie Mae as executive vice president running multifamily mortgage business. So as Deb would say, there was nothing emerging about him Mm. besides the word emerging. But he, for Artemis, was one of our first operating partners and he was a friend of the firm, but he didn't have access to institutional capital. So in the early days of Railfield, we supported him and his team in our Chevy Chase office. And today we've completed 
numerous transactions with him, two of which have been realized and outperformed their targets by over 400 basis points. And we're always here. You know, recently we've been speaking to Ken about um, how the trajectory of where he would like his business to go. We've introduced him to different new pockets of capital, like the Prudentials and others of the world. And so we're seeing his success real time. And while that success is solely on him, we do feel great that our capital is allowed him to to gain that success. And, and let's think about this for a minute, because it's really interesting. And coming out of Fannie Mae with being six foot six or however tall he is, so he, he's a presence, coming out of running Fannie Mae, he was a known quantity, as was his team. And maybe he could get one-off deal capital, but you were there to help the business. So your commitment ran wider than, hey, I have a deal. Let me go to XYZ and get that deal funded. 100%. Was it the different kind of bear hug that made that work? Absolutely. In fact, it started when I said, if you're really going to do this, I know how hard it is. And why don't you not pay rent? You can, as Anar says, you can, this is out of the venture capital model, right? This is mm-hmm. come stay in our space, use all of our resources, and get yourself up and going mm-hmm. before you... Um, you know, before you launch into your own, um, even your own physical space. Mm -hmm. So we provided Ken with all of the resources that we had, and Ken will tell stories. In fact, someday you you should listen to Ken presented at our investor conference and just did an extraordinary job talking about what it was like to to make that transition and having done it myself too, where Mm -hmm. it's pretty lonely when you start out and you're only just your one person, despite one size. And uh, I think what we were able to do is give him all the resources of an established firm, you know, whether it's how do you do insurance? What are the, I struggle to open bank accounts. I mean, all of the basic things of starting a business, we were able to help provide for him until he had the capital and was ready to take the next step. And I'll give another example. And as Anar says, Ken's gone on to be successful and still a dear friend of our firm. The the very first joint venture operating partner actually was Tammy Jones of Basis Capital. <laughs> and she's now, I was going to quote her because she's trying to provide capital in the same way you are to emerging, particularly black owners. Right. And she's she started because I was reference checking another emerging manager. And when I called the reference, they said, I don't know why you're talking to that person. You should really meet Tammy Jones. And Tammy had worked for this individual at CW Capital, actually. And um, and I said, really? Well, will you introduce me? And I met Tammy. And the very first deal we did with Tammy was actually in our value fund. Mm-hmm. And we brought her into a transaction that we were doing. And that is a way that we really do help grow and scale our joint venture operating partners is oftentimes we will bring them deals. Mm -hmm. That is very unusual. Mm -hmm. And so we brought Tammy into a a CMBS transaction that went on to do collectively to do the due diligence with us, went on to do extremely well. And so she was one of our first operating partners in our value fund. Then she was one of our, she was the first operating partner in the emerging manager program. And Not only did we invest in Tammy's debt transactions, but when Tammy went to raise her first fund, we brought... Her first not-debt fund. 
we're in our first fund. We've invested in our second fund, we on behalf of institutions. And now she's raised an equity. Te- she's she hired. She brought in an equity team, and she's expanding and scaling her business. And I would say Tammy's no longer an emerging manager no. either. And she is she is really a you know a multi strat highly successful joint venture operating partner that has become a fund manager. And that is credit to Tammy, obviously, in her business, but um, on the institutional capital side, to New York Common, to New York City, and to Mm -hmm. the other investors that supported her. That's a great story. Uh, She's one of the few two-time guests on Leading Voices. Oh, wow. So she had a whole episode. And then before that, she was one of six people who, about three weeks after George Floyd was killed, I got six six black leaders to individually talk to me for 20 minutes apiece. Wow. It was a very emotional session, and she was one of the leaders who came onto that uh, yeah. episode, which was She's phenomenal. Really great. So talk about the other sides of your business besides that, and then we're okay. going to change the subject off of you guys and talk about the marketplace. Okay. So we, we have our flagship fund series, which is a value-add fund series. We, um, we just closed in tw- the first half of 2023 in June. Our fund four, it was a $2.2 billion fund. Uh, it was the first fund that we ever had um, pre-approved co-invest investors. It was the first fund we were able to attract two sovereign wealth funds, one from the Middle East and one from Asia. So that's a milestone for us. We exceeded our target fundraise by 50%, wow. which in this market, as you know, is, is a challenge. We had a 99% investor re-up rate, institutional investor re-up rate across, our, across that fund series, which I'm very, extremely proud of. And we, you know, we have today 75% to 80% dry powder. And I would tell you that I think the deals one didn't do in 21, 22, and 23 will be as defining uh-huh. as the deals that we will do in this next They're vintage. And I'm not, I'm not casting dispersions on what anybody nope. else said. I'm more saying it takes a lot of discipline to have raised that amount of capital as right. a, as um, in a flagship fund and have an organiza- organization, manage an organization to be ready to deploy and not. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that, that's probably one of the biggest challenges that, that everybody in the industry has today because it's it's taken a little bit longer to, to see the distress work its way through the system, I think, than, than um, so those who invested earlier might have thought. And we will, each fund cycle in our value fund series, will pivot to the best risk-adjusted returns uh-huh. that we think the market is, that we think exists in the market depending upon that point in the cycle. Uh-huh. So we think there's going to obviously be more distress in fund four. Yeah. And then in, the, so the fundraise finished. So when were you able to deploy capital and you chose not to, because that discipline you said is meaningful, which it is. Talk a little bit about that timing and how long you're now waiting. The next topic on our discussion actually is today's market. So we're there. So talk about how you had the brakes on or off in 22 and now in 23. And when do you see taking brakes off? And it becomes a lot about indeed distress because there's special opportunities finally now. Mm-hmm. People have been waiting since the RTC for special opportunities again. Yes. And yes. this time it's going to happen. It didn't happen the last time. That is true. And your lips to God's ears that this time it happens. Um if you have the good fortune, which knock on wood, I feel we have of having significant dry powder, which you do across all of our vehicles right now, 
because we also have a separate healthcare platform, which we ha- which is has significant dry powder, as does the value fund series, as does the the emerging manager program. We all feel our time has come. It's actually coming a little bit faster in, in healthcare, but we could have deployed. And as I mentioned, we've only deployed 20% of the capital in the value fund series in the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. And that is because we felt rates were going to continue to rise. And if rates continue to rise, values were going to continue to decline. And so why would you buy something that might you, you're you going to be able to get cheaper later? We, When we deployed capital, and NR can, can shed some light on this as well, but was, was either in mezzanine, pref, loan to own, where we were comfortable coming in at our basis and getting a mid-teens return if we were paid off and if we could buy the asset, um, then we were comfortable owning the asset at that basis. But we have been very selective. Our product types have mostly been storage, residential, industrial. And in the deployments, have most of them been debt or mez? Yes. Maybe I'll jump in here. So the majority of the 20% that Deb mentioned was deployed over the past six months. Uh And that was purposeful. And I will really attribute that to our partnership, but more specifically our experience and Deb and Alex's experience, their partnership in managing over multiple cycles. And when we started seeing the capital markets become more volatile, and quite frankly, all the interest rate increases, we we all knew what we didn't know, mm-hmm. which was, when is it going to stop? And we didn't know that. And so with that opaque lens, we slowed down our deployment because we're always concerned about liquidity. And that is why, and you'll see this in the theme across our, all of Artemis's vehicles, we pivot when we need to. And we pivoted at that point to really looking at PREF equity and mezzanine, originating PREF equity and mezzanine investments. And so, and so, and so we're excited about the market opportunity in, in front of us. So quick sidecar, because you talked about healthcare, just describe what that business is. It sounds like a separate business, but at least get it out there. So we- Sure. We have all been investing in real estate healthcare going on three decades. And in 2016, we did the same thing we did with the Emerging Manager Program. We looked and we said, we should create a product that would focus on having a 7% quarterly dividend that would invest in core plus healthcare, mm-hmm. dedicated, diversified and dedicated to healthcare with a dedicated healthcare team. The diversification came from a third, we would do a third medical office, a third senior housing, and a third debt on those two product types. That had not been done before. Mm-hmm. And that had a uh, very successful raise in 2017. We exceeded our target and we were doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And then the pandemic hit. Well, healthcare Clobbered. was the essence at the epicenter of the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Senior housing, you had um, the COVID outbreaks. And we generated a 7% quarterly dividend from day one all the way through the pandemic, mm. which I think was the reason that when we went to raise healthcare fund two, even though that, and that was also, you know, in like 2020, 2021, we, um, we achieved, we, we hit our hard cap and then another $500 billion and another 500 million of, of co-invest capital. So we had tremendous success. And I think the healthcare real estate as an, as a asset class will do, um, 
will be a little bit like hotels that we'll mm-hmm. look back on that. And hopefully 10 years, you'll be talking to somebody else in a podcast at Artemis about the growth of the healthcare real estate as a as a viable institutional product type. And we, we are seeing that with inbound requests, global inbound requests of capital to invest in healthcare real estate as the population ages. And we, we are. Yes, we are. And it's a very, and it's very needs-based. But seniors housing has been, as a, as a sector, so you're proud of having maintained returns because COVID really clobbered seniors housing. Does it rebound back well? Is it overbuilt? Just, yeah, it has. In our, our same store portfolio, we have had shown significant rebound in, in the last year, six months to a year. Um in, there has been very little building <laughs> because of COVID and mm-hmm. because of the illiquidity that Anar mentioned in the bank financing market. So you're actually seeing, we are seeing um, more what, what I would call seller distressed, which is my favorite kind of distress mm-hmm. opportunities um, in healthcare today than we have in the last three years. And so that it's actually the system is disgorging the opportunity. And because we have the dry powder, we are taking advantage of that. And and how much operator differentiation between operators and seniors housing, I bet, will predict results more than other sectors. Yes. Multifamilies, multifamily, but seniors housing, which I used to do for a living, by the way. So I remember this is the weak will fail and the strong will survive. Talk about that in that model, and then you're more important because you really do help the investors select who to do business with. You want to take that one, Anna? Sure. I I would say you hit the nail on the head. The operator quality is the number one uh, decision point um, besides normal real estate statistics of location, basis, et cetera, because it's so operationally driven, Mm -hmm. the senior housing class. But I would say that we've had seen a number of transient investors over the past 10 years because of the capital markets and because interest rates are at all all time low. So more and more people were funneling into senior housing, thinking it was just one of the niche asset classes. And what has occurred through COVID and through the capital markets volatility is really the delineation between people who really have the healthcare senior housing expertise, as our team has done. And Deb should talk about how when they did their first senior housing deal at our previous organization. But that distinguishment of the operating partnership and the performance of the operating partnership is operating partners is really what is the differentiation between our track record and others in the market. Yeah, look, healthcare is equal parts care and real estate. Yep. And if you approach it that way and you build a team and a woman that runs our asset management is fabulous and she comes from um, the one of the largest operating partners, senior housing mm-hmm. operators in the industry. And I think having both the dedicated healthcare expertise supported by all the rest of Artemis has been, you know, part of our success. But I also think being diversified and having that diversity, it's one of our kind of hallmarks is not just doing a senior housing fund, mm-hmm. but doing uh, senior housing, medical office and debt. And, mm-hmm. and, has, and so debt and equity has, has given, you know, 
has, you know, has really been the right, at least for us, the right strategy that's delivered the risk-adjusted returns that we told investors. Cool. Okay, we're going to go back to a subject that we were starting to talk about, yes. which is where we are in the market right now, the challenges of the market, the challenges of doing deals, doing business and deal flow, which is a trickle versus the volume, the crazy people who did deals last two years. But what, how do you see that? Are prices going to start stabilizing? When do we get back to a normal? And the last part of this question is the new normal will not include office the way it did before. So the world's changed too. The new normal is different than the old normal. Let's talk about now and then maybe what you see as a new normal. That's a complex lot there. There is a lot there. So Anar and I should go back and forth on this one. And, Perfect. you know, I can jump in. At, look, if you look at the stats of what office used to be as a percentage of Odyssey and what it's right. going to be going forward, that's the answer to your question. If you look at Artemis and you say, mm, in the 2014-15, we had, you know, 30% in our, in our, even our value fund series in maybe an office. We haven't done an office deal in four years. And if I think about equity in our value funds, the percentage, uh, fair value percentage to office is, is less than 2% across the funds and retail less than 1%. Mm-hmm. So that means other product types are obviously, you, you, there's, a, there's a pivot, as Anar said, because I like to say what, what's made us successful is our pivotability to the best risk-adjusted returns at a point in time in the cycle. So Anar can talk about whether it's um, our self-storage joint ventures, because we've done very, very well in storage, or our residential, industrial but so I, I, I do think this vintage will see or has up until now seen more um, alternatives and obviously more industrial and residential. But I, I, I do see us now moving into more distress, whether it's distress because a debt provider wants to, you know, is bringing us into a, a debt fund is bringing us into a transaction that they need liquidity. So you're starting to see situational distress mm-hmm. release by the seller, release opportunity to us. I mean, Anar, you want to you want to talk about one of those transactions? Well, yeah, I was going to talk about one of those transactions, but I wa- want to also reiterate, kind of understand the continuity of how we invest and something that we haven't really talked about, but goes hand in hand of, of our emerging manager platform is our focus on the middle market. And our focus on the middle market goes hand hand in hand with our EM operating partner platform. But the reason I focus on that is because uh, we're always concerned about liquidity. So we're always concerned about liquidity uh, across the cycle, but even more so today. And given that Artemis' middle market strategy, so whether that's you know the joint venture structure that we talked about earlier, or we're being very selective in the assets that we do do, and in that. 20 to 60 million dollar equity check we do believe we are below the radar and therefore you know have the capacity to generate uh create larger portfolios and therefore quite frankly a premium on our assets and so because we're below the radar and because we're solely focused on the middle market we can find more complex opportunities also less efficient opportunities where there's a less efficiency on the buyer side and quite frankly, also on the lending side. But one of the examples that Deb mentioned is that same strategy on, on in a self-storage portfolio. We've been inve- um, investing in self-storage 
since we started Artemis in 2010. So again, we do feel we were ahead of the curve before everybody and all the tailwinds were in the niche asset classes. So building our self-storage track record starting in 2010, we really saw the benefit of the middle market strategy by buying one off small assets and aggregating a portfolio and then selling that portfolio to kind of larger, more efficient buyer pools. And we've just continued to do that time and time again throughout our vehicles, not just our fund vehicles, but also our EM, our EM vehicles or our, our emerging manager uh, core plus vehicles. Um, but recently we were able to find an opportunity where there was a family office who really were liquidity constrained again, going back to liquidity and liquidity constraint in the other aspect of their portfolio, not in their real estate portfolio. So we were able to recap the family office. We were providing 65% of the capital. They retained 35% of the capital, which we like that. It's alignment of interest. Everybody's kind of going together at a lower ba at a, a basis, a very attractive basis. So, um, so anyway, that's an example of something that's kind of off the market right. under because it was the middle market and in a secular tailwind strategy. And let's one other comment, then let's move subjects a little bit, is um, price discovery on making equity bets versus making debt bets. Are you almost there to do that? What's what's that mean? And and the return hurdles will be different than they were before, but there's there's troubled deals coming where equity checks will matter. I think we've been one amazing part of having experience across multiple cycles is that we're very discerning. So there's a lot of price discovery occurring now. So I would say anecdotally, it feels like we're pricing, you know, a hundred assets to really find one interested, you know, um, opportunity. That being said, we will go down the path on numerous opportunities to see where that price of discovery lands. But what we're finding is maybe we agree with the seller on pricing, but then the debt quote comes in significantly different than what was represented by the debt broker, the mortgage broker. So that impacts that price discovery. And so we are we have been underwriting a few unlevered opportunities, quite yeah, frankly, because time. of that opaqueness in the financing market, which impacts the prices, Garby, that you're asking about on the equity side. You're definitely seeing, though, a movement where we call it hanging around the hoop and um, where you're starting to see trades. And you're seeing maybe it's the end of the year, and so institutions want assets off of their balance sheets, but both in healthcare and in the value fund series and, and actually in our income and growth, we are seeing um, open-ended funds trade core assets and we're, we think we're going to buy them at, at core plus light value add pricing. And so you're seeing, you're just starting to see the, the movement. And mm -hmm. as you said in the beginning, maybe that turns into floodgates, you know, in the, in the coming year. We're starting to see some capitulation, yep. which everybody has been talking about for a year and a half. We're starting to see that capitulation quite uh, actively. But again, I go back to um, liquidity being the biggest concern on the majority of people's portfolios, assets. Kind of, We'll see a lot of um, uh, capital distress in, in the multifamily space as well because um, of where assets were bought previously in the market. Well, both assets bought in multifamily and also the amount of deliveries out there right now is some people need to trade out of those deliveries and may do it for less than replacement cost. 
Yes. And it, in the GFC, we were waiting for that to happen. I don't think it capitulation, I don't think happened after the GFC, but I think it's going to happen in the next 18 months. Well, someone spoke to recently and we, it was really, it was really, it put a really good light as we think about the market versus the GFC. There wasn't a liquidity issue in the GFC versus today with, you know, over the next three years, you have 1.9 trillion loans coming due and, you know, they're refinancing over the next 18 to 24 months will further challenge investor liquidity. But we didn't have bank lending down 48% and CMBS lending down 79%. Yep. And the fact that the banks may not come back to the market. So all of that combined, I feel like is very different than the GFC. So you're getting to the next subject. I want to think about the flavor of capital for a minute. And I want to put the flavor of capital that you have in perspective with other capital. So if I think of the REITs, if I think of the mega funds, and I think of you, and I think of even smaller players, where does capital want to be and who's the most competitive in the short run and then into the next cycle? To answer your question, where does capital want to go? If you just look at the statistics for the first half of this year, 75% of the real estate capital raised was raised by the top 10 largest sponsors and vehicles. Uh -huh. Yeah. And of that, I think 42% went to Blackstone. So capital does not want to go to small <laughs> emerging first-time funds. And that typically happens in periods of distress. And is that solidified? If you look at diverse and emerging or smaller funds in 2011, they were 2% of total capital under management were owned by diverse and emerging funds. Assets under management in the last 10 years have grown 55% in our industry. Uh -huh. Diverse and emerging manager firms, 2%. Wow. Yeah. So the... Um, you know, th that data says mm, where capital wants to go is big, keep getting bigger, consolidation trend in the industry. Uh, institutional investors want to do more with fewer managers, which means the big also continue to get bigger. And so I, I think it's those are the those are the macro trends in in micro today. Capital, there's a significant amount of capital going to credit. Mm -hmm. Okay, which makes yeah. sense, and I think it's it, and I think that there are that capital is looking for managers that have strong teams, succession planning. I think there's there's a whole group of of traditional fund managers that that are struggling to raise capital today, and mm -hmm. that is a reflection of where capital doesn't want to go. And so I think um, I think at a macro at a macro level we are at a a pivotal point in the real estate investment management industry. Yeah. And do the big keep getting bigger from that? Do the returns from the big become more vanilla returns? I don't want to speak to the large fund returns yeah. because I'm sure they are very attractive. I, we focus on what we do uh -huh. and we believe we will continue to generate, you know, attractive risk adjusted returns in our in our markets and that being under the radar screen and being as a NARSET in the middle market, which is less competitive and more liquidity challenged, should generate better risk-adjusted returns. And when you think, when, when everything you just said, are REITs and money that goes into REITs outside of that equation or inside of that equation? 
outside of that equation. And then I'm looking at the private fund. Which is going to say public REITs or private REITs? Yeah. Public REITs, I think, are outside of the equation yes. you said, but they're sure. inside the buying group, although they may be at some times better right right. to buy or sometimes worse to buy than is private equity. Yep. Wait, what I often say is we create we you know we we create REIT bait. So we will aggregate portfolios to a size that a REIT will come in and buy our portfolio, oftentimes at a premium to the individual asset buys that we aggregate. When REITs are sellers, that's attractive for us because they're they're out of the market and you know if you can if you can if they're unloading and you can take advantage of that, that's terrific. When re- we rarely compete against REITs as buyers, oh, and and so I, when I was giving you the statistics, mm-hmm. it was as public REITs as buyers outside of the market, and they've been very challenged because of the pricing, you know, their their equity pricing today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The majority of transactions, or seventy percent of U.S. private transactions, are done in the middle market. So it's so if you think about that from a perspective mm-hmm. where the capital is going and where the, where it's not focusing, but yet historically where the transaction volume was, kind of doesn't make hundred percent sense. And so therefore, that's a great opportunity for people who are investing in the modern market, like Artemis and their and um, our emerging manager platform. You know, it reminds me of how we when we first started Artemis, and and I would say, look, you're always going to invest in in Blackstone, Brookfield. We're the, and, and that's like a large cap stock, right? Uh-huh. We're the small cap or now the, the mid cap. We are a complement right. to the larger um, funds. And so do both mm-hmm. and, 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 and you can be the judge over time. Makes sense. And again, I, I think of REITs a lot because when I was growing up in the business, the emergence of the REITs were the revolution mm-hmm. and now it's the establishment. But I think of that as an other bucket where people invest in real estate, although as I am learning more and more now, so many of those stocks move with the S&P, they don't move with real estate values. And oftentimes now we're actually partnering with REITs. You've seen numerous press releases with other similar firms as ourselves as just being an off-balance sheet capital provider. Again, going back to that lack of liquidity that's in the market. So having numerous conversations with REITs to really provide financing or joint venture capital outside off their balance sheet. It's interesting. I might not call them an emerging manager, but I would Definitely not. but I would call them a, you know, usually great operator, a great partner to have, great access to asset managing, really wonderful portfolios depending upon what the theme of the read is. 100%. 100%. And a lot of times it's really looking within their the within their portfolio and figuring out what they want to take off balance sheet. So Cool. So I want to change the subject. Mm-hmm. I have followed your career since JER. Okay. And I was at the RTC during JER, so we wow. worked a lot with JER. Yes, you did. Uh, I worked in the affordable housing program at the RTC, okay. and JER was one of the major contractors for us. You're one of the first female CEOs in the business, and you grew up in this business alongside my wife, who did this for Cigna and Aetna and did it for iStore, where she worked with Anar for a while. Um, so I've watched the, <laughs> and so I've watched the challenges of being a female CEO in the business. Talk about that. Talk about how that got you to start this business. You may have to talk about the end of JER 
and then how you found Penny together to found this. So that's, again, Wait, complex that's, that's question. but you Long get to, story. I know. Okay, I'll try to do it in short form. First, you know, shout out to your wife, to Diane. When I started Artemis, I went looking for other, because I wasn't the first woman CEO. I'm sure there were plenty of very talented women CEOs in the real estate business. But when I, when I started Artemis, I went to look for other women-owned real estate private equity mm-hmm. firms. There, I couldn't find any. And so we concluded, maybe I didn't look hard enough, but we concluded that we were the first, if not among the first, women-owned real estate private equity firms. I, when, the reason why I went to look for others is because I wanted to learn from their mistakes. Mm-hmm. And Diane, your wife, was starting a group um, with another woman named Vicki Schiff of women CEOs that most people didn't think existed. And right. she brought together very intentionally um, a group of CEOs, which it, it really mattered that you could go into a room and and network and relationship build. And she did so with an intentionality to help though, to have those relationships generate transaction flow. And um, so when you say to me, you know, what was it like when you first started? It was way harder than anything I ever expected. And I often joke that if I had known how hard it was, I should have just given my money to Blackstone. <laughs> it was an industry that, that I, I knew had a status quo bias, mm-hmm. but I did not appreciate how um, resistant it would be to difference. Mm-hmm. And so the people in the industry that, that today are inviting women in mm-hmm. or minorities in, I have tremendous gratitude for. And I can see what it was like to have, to, to be now, I have the opportunity to join groups that have been around for 25, 30 years. And, and these people have been advancing each other's careers, providing capital to each other, right. showing deals. And when you come into that group and our ripe old age, you know, you realize what you have missed. Mm-hmm. And I, I truly hope that, you know, to, to make sustainable change, it will not only be Diane, my generation, our generation of women that, to take a quote from Tammy Jones, reach back and pay forward, but it'll be Anar's and her generation. And it's, it's not only the, the diverse CEOs, right? Because we have some great male and female diverse CEOs or, or leaders of businesses, whether it's Sonny Kelsey, who's Green Oak. I don't know if he's been on your, your show. Or, almost. Um, almost, okay. Or um, Melinda Ellis from big to small. But there are the CEOs f- for whom diversity matters, like, I don't know if you know Jonathan Slager from Bridge mm-hmm. or Dean Adler, who are really, you know, working to advance and 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 help us all change the face of the real estate industry. And that's creating opportunity for both the next generation, but also taking risk on the VP in your organization that may not quite be ready and may look different than everybody else, but focusing on talent development, focusing on, like, I I was smiling when you asked Anar and I who, what our titles were, right? We're probably somewhat unusual in that there's a co for everything. There are co-founders, there are co-presidents, mm-hmm. there are co-portfolio managers. That is intentional. And so I would say that to go back to your question, what was it was not easy starting, but 90 people strong today and 15 years later and looking at the next generation at Artemis, 
makes me tremendously proud and hopeful for the future. Cool. So I want to go back further than the starting of Artemis. Okay. Because you were one of the first female CEOs or presidents That's because true. I think at JER, which true. for those who won't remember, I'll give the headline, kind of got started as a troubled asset asset manager, particularly for the RTC. But I think at some point they started an opportunity fund, one of the first ones, and I think you ran that. Yes. So you were there in the early days before Artemis. I left uh, Bankers Trust as a managing director in I don't even want to say the year. It was okay. my husband's turn to move. And he said we would move to Washington for a couple of years and then we'd go back to New York. I came down here and I went looking around for, I needed, where was I going to work? And Steve Ross of the related companies introduced me to Joe Robert. And Joe Robert said what you knew, which is we're going to see the greatest transfer of wealth from the public sector to the private sector through the liquidation of the RTC. So let's create a business. And you, Deb, you be employee number one, two, to go out and raise the capital. And and we're an operating partner and we'll become the largest operating partner to the capital. And so there's a little known story that no one knows. Blackstone did not have a real estate private equity fund, real estate fund in 1991. And so we took the 10% other mm-hmm. in private equity and they contributed equity and, and Goldman Whitehall contributed equity. And we bought the first or second RTC, our first bid RTC mm-hmm. portfolio. And the rest was history. In five years, we bought $10 billion of assets and we became the largest operating partner to Whitehall, Goldman, and Lehman Brothers, and First Boston, um, Mm -hmm. buying non-performing loans. It was an incredible time. And Joe Robert had a terrific vision in terms of he was the largest private asset manager for the RTC. And that is where I hired my partner today, who is truly my better half, and that is Alex Gilbert. And Mm -hmm. a number of the people, the key people from JER came to me to start Artemis. And so um, Artemis was really not that a startup. It had all people that had worked together before. Um, And it was, I I think the timing, I worked for 17 years at JER. I was the number two for the last 10 years. I never thought I would grow Artemis to be twice the size of JER in half the time. But I will tell you that some of the lessons I learned from the governance and the and the lack of alignment of interest and other things were all of those lessons learned were were filtered back in. You got to start. do 2.0. I get to do, I got to do 2.0, it, exactly and right. 1.0, just for our listeners, I love history lessons on leading voices, but all of the opportunity funds, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, DLJ, you were competing with them, but that first round of wealth transfer and fortunes were made out of that downturn. 100%. And all those people wanted to have a similar downturn against so they could do it again, but those firms dissipated in different ways, and your 2.0 became Artemis. Right. And how did you hook up, find Penny? What what was her role in starting right. this? I was reminded when, when you were saying uh, the first go-around, as you say, the first 10 years, there was tremendous wealth creation, and we were the operating partner. And I always thought, I, I, I hope I come back in my next version as the capital provider and the and the um, uh, and the operating partner. Um, there was tremendous wealth creation. The wealth creation was more for the capital and the investors than it was then for the operating partner. I had 
thought I retired in 2007. <laughs> the markets were at peak in the U.S. I was going to take my uh, net worth and do good for mankind. And Joe wanted to expand JER to be a global presence or all around the world. And then 2008 hit. And that retirement turned into a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. And Penny had reached out to me when I sent around a, a retirement notice. And she had said, uh, well, you're never going to retire. Your family's never going to retire. We had done a deal in, in one of our Europe funds together. And it had done very well. And she said, if you ever want to start a business, let me know. And I said, nah, not now. It's not the right time. And that was an intuitive, that, that was just intuitive of how hard it is to find deals. And if you want to, this is the time, right? Right when no one will give you money is the time that you want to start a business or you want to deploy capital. And so when Bear Stearns failed and Lehman Brothers was teetering, I picked up the phone and called her and said, okay, if we want to start a business, now's the time. And I've, I am a distressed buyer at heart. That's what I started to do in you know, 1991. I, I, my lesson learned was always better to buy debt at a discount than to claw your way back up to par. And, um, and she said, okay, I'm in. And we went on a listening tour for six months. We talked to hundreds of investors about mm. what would they want to see if a new manager entered the space, and this was in September of 09, and we, um, Artemis was born in that month, and, and we had a first close of our first fund in January of 2011. Well, and when you talked about this at the beginning of the conversation, you talked about your co-invest with the original investors. So I assume that's Penny's money, some of yours maybe, yes. but that, that was a significant advantage in going to capital because interests are quite aligned in that case. Yes, we were prepared to be to raise Penny and myself were prepared to be 50 million of 150 million first close, so there was significant alignment of interest. We had a number of investors that had invested with me at JR gave me a chance again when <laughs> quote I was running Alex and I were running the zoo and um, those investors I have little statues for them but there was significant alignment of interest a great team of people that had worked together before and we also put up significant seed equity to to build out because we were starting from a, a napkin right a blank sheet of paper to build out the infrastructure what I wanted investors to see was they really weren't taking any first-time fund risk Mm -hmm. And Debbie probably doesn't know this, but her career for many of the females when I started, so I've been here, I've been in the real estate investment arena for two decades. I'm on my second deck. I just finished, I celebrated 20 years of, of being in the real estate uh, investment space. It was a area of really, we looked up to her and what she did in her career. And, um, and, and she continues, I know she said she wanted to do good by mankind, but I do believe that Artemis is, is doing good, Deb. So, um, and, 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 and that is not only through all of our partnership with all of our team and um, being a part of a diverse team, or myself being a part of a diverse team that is the next executive leadership behind Deb, but we're trying to do the same thing that she had, she has done 20 years in her career. And, um, and the purpose part of, Everything that we do is to change the face of, real, of the real estate industry. So you don't have to feel them. So you don't, others don't feel the same way you did, Deb. So, and we do that through numerous amount, uh, numerous partnerships with Twigo, Urban Alliance, SEO, and more recently, the Priya Foundation. And I think we're very proud through Deb's leadership that we, Artemis has committed a million dollars 
to the PREA Foundation in support of PREA Foundation, Foundation grantees, which includes SEO, Urban Alliance, and the Real Estate Executive Council's ex, um, exchange program. Which is something that Tammy Jones started. So yes. you can, it just makes me, like I want to cry when I listen to NAR, but I, I really do think that we have an entire firm out here that um, that is both is walking the talk, not just talking the talk, and making mm-hmm. such a, a difference more broadly. And the goal for me, if I repeat this, if I said at the beginning, look, we, I wanted Artemis to be a force multiplier of performance and purpose. And I wanted our purpose piece to be advancing diversity and inclusion and changing the face of the real estate industry. And I wanted that to be a legacy that the generate my generation, your generation, Matt, yep. really everyone bought into. And I have seen that through the PREA Foundation in the most extraordinary way, both institutional investors and uh-huh. CEOs. And honestly, you know, other than my family, nothing makes me more proud than to to listen to Nard, to listen to Alex and Rich and the all the other the people at Artemis and to see that work filtered into the industry at large. Our predominant purpose has been to to close the economic opportunity gap mm-hmm. for diverse and emerging managers and for talent in diverse talent to provide opportunity. And it's it's not you don't want to be a firm that's 100% one way or 100% the other. You want balance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say all the time that diverse teams are very – that could be – we have a 50-50 diversity at Artemis. Their diverse teams are much harder to build, harder to manage, which is probably why it doesn't happen very much. But when you do it right, mm-hmm. they can significantly outperform. And and that's what we try to do. So our purpose part is – goes first and foremost to performance, mm-hmm. and then to providing opportunity and closing the economic opportunity gap. So, Anar, I'm going to ask you the same question, but from a different perspective, because Debbie and my generation are about to leave. <laughs> We're passing the baton to your generation. So how do you look at the meaning of those things for the next 20 years of real estate activity investment that you have? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And um, I think you always have to lead by performance. And first and foremost, yep. there has you have to dissuade the stereotypes of investing with diversity, full stop. And I think we've done that at Artemis. But also, all of these things that we're doing, whether it's the Twigos, the Urban Alliance, the SEO, et cetera, all these partnerships have a common goal of diversifying our industry and creating opportunities in real estate that haven't been readily accessible. We created a summer enrichment program in 2013 to further, even further diversify the talent pool in the real estate industry. Of the 200 interns that have participated in our program, 86% of those have been women and minority students to date. And 50% of those students have then gone on to get real estate or banking or some sort of finance. So. Deb, you mentioned the word co, so you have a co-CEO. Nar, you have co-presidents. There's some succession in here, and there's some resiliency in having the the concept of co and how you manage the company. So talk about that. Yeah, I'll start, and Nar, you jump in. I mean, I think it's funny that co begins with this word, but 
collaborative leadership is a hallmark at Artemis. And I am a huge believer in one plus one when done right can equal 11 and not two. And if you look, it's, 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 we have co-portfolio managers, yes, for resilience, 100%, but also for diversity of perspective and diversity mm. of thought. And um, that is really the th- – that has been our DNA since the beginning. And you're starting to see some big firms. Starwood just announced Co's on their fund series. And so I, I do think that, um, that, that it is – it's just – it's how I think we best – manage and run the firm. I, I mentioned Alex. Alex um, grew up with, who is co-CEO with me. He was a, in the military, Air Force pilot. Let me tell you something. When things get rocky and yeah. there's a lot of, and you're in a foxhole, you know, mm-hmm. you want someone like, you want Alex as your partner. And we come at things oftentimes from very different. Bankers uh, Trust versus the Air Force? I well, can it was, see. he was the Air Force and then Morgan Stanley. So, okay. so he, he went quickly into institutionalization, but his he comes at the opportunity from the asset level. I come from the partner level. Mm-hmm. We meet in between. He comes from just a very different perspective. And inevitably, I find that when we debate and we process, we come out with a better resolution. And we try to lead the firm mm-hmm. by example in that way and, and show people our, our, our debate, our disagreement, and, ha- and, and I feel like embrace conflict, which is a hard concept for, for a lot of people because I think that, that makes for you know, kind of better, right. more transparent leadership. But, but I think the other thing that's most important is, at least for me, is I'm very competitive. Like, I want to be the fastest. I want to get to where we're going first. All of the things that define, I think, no, you know, real estate. Another co. Yeah, another co. But, but, but I will tell you that if you want to go fastest, you go alone. But if you want to go farthest, then you pick the, your partners, mm-hmm. like Penny, Alex, Anar, Rich and and the other um, owners at Artemis, those partners are and that shared value and vision are why Artemis, I hope, is going to go. You know, <laughs> for another not fifteen years, but but many more years, and that the, the team will have been set up for, you know, on the back of now having raised ten billion dollars of AUM to significantly grow. And mm-hmm. I'm, that was my goal. My goal was honestly when I started Artemis. Two funds and done, mm. you know, raise a billion dollars and then we'll, we'll go. And it's 10 times that. And I'm excited for it to be their turn. It was actually the re- reason and rationale why I chose to join Debbie and, and, and Alex and Rich and Vu and Nish and all of our partners and coming to Artemis five years ago because of that value system. And a lot of people don't know this because most people assume I'm from New York um, when they meet me, but I'm a daughter of Indian immigrants and I grew up in Alabama. Mm. And um, and growing up as the only minority in my community, literally the only minority in my community in Alabama, imbued in me a unique resilience and perspective that became my greatest strength in real estate. And really having that partnership or that culture of valuing diversity of thought and perspective, especially in contrast to the real estate industry. When I was deciding where to to, to make the next 10 years or more of my career, I could have gone to a lot of the flagship names. And for me, that homogeneity 
often prevails in some of those in some of those uh, names. So for me, it was really being at an organization where I wasn't the only minority in the room. And I wanted to be at a place where my decision making and my partnership and my expertise to create value was, quite frankly, value. So, um, so, and I think that is going back to the next generation, the question you asked previously, yep. that is a, I think the top talent is looking for today. Mm-hmm. We are seeing that more and more young people are looking for themselves in the senior leadership. And even they don't see themselves, they see, they, they want to see, even if they see themselves often, <laughs> they want to see that diversity. The new generation is, does value it differently. I think they want to feel enfranchised. People yeah. want to feel empowered. They don't have to be the boss, but they right. have to be empowered through their career early or else they're in trouble. It, and is this part of succession planning? We had Bob DeWitt and Greg Bates from GIT on the show talking about their planned succession that had already occurred about a year ago. What, how do you deal with that? And what's that resiliency also for your investors and your team? I think that, A, the fact that we've had all of our co-portfolio managers have worked with each other for five to 10 years. I think that the fact that, you know, NAR's now been with us five years, Rich for, which Alex and I have worked together for 20 years. When you add our other portfolio managers, probably all of us collectively 20 years. And, and yet we have this crop of what I would call 38 to 45 year olds that are, that's the next generation. And, uh, and under them, another, I, I say all the time, we are, we have, is it 50% in our, of, our, uh, of our population, might be even higher, 60% are 60%, VP or above. Yeah. So we are top heavy in the best way possible. And that is the answer to succession planning, that we mm-hmm. have intentionally invested in, in talent so mm-hmm. that we can, and we've in, intentionally expanded the opportunity set with so many vehicles so that now the next generation are running vehicles and investors have watched us very in a very disciplined way add the people first to the investment committee then add them to the key man and and over time i always say look i began with the end in mind i had already lived it once mm-hmm. for 25 years in the next period i was going to use all those lessons learned and make sure that there was resiliency sustainability succession planning alignment of interest so that the investors were, you know, were protected, as was my family and, mm-hmm. and, and the employees' families. So, Yeah. If I think of two headlines from the conversation, because we have to wrap up. One is we've talked so much about diversity in emerging managers, but a whole lot about diversity. But I'm so happy that we picked on the other headline, which is this co-leadership concept. Because if you think of your secret sauce, it's those two things, along with knowing the hell out of real estate, but those together are very unique. We haven't had that conversation before in Leading Voices with a commitment to that collaborative, conflicting, and competitive business. I hope, it, you know, potentially a tagline is, and maybe you have talked about it before, but is being a force multiplier of performance and purpose. Because Penny and I could have started Artemis just to do the two funds. Make right. we, we were the top de- – our first fund was – is fully realized top decile performance. We could have called it a day. And instead, it, it was intentional to build a business that really led by example and showed that collaboration, diversity of perspective actually does translate back to better performance. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and, and a focus on risk management and sustainability and then, and then closing the economic opportunity gap as part of the, the, the mission of the business. And we, we didn't start out to be an impact fund. We were never an impact fund. This wasn't about making more impact and taking less return. Mm -hmm. It was about outperforming and also doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Force multiplier is an interesting word because it's not just about the real estate. Right. It's not just about the returns. You're right. doing this other thing in the business, which is triples the effect instead right. of just the effect. So exactly I love Exactly right. So last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person entering into the real estate business. And Anar, I'm going to let you go first and have Debbie have the last word on that. It's a great question. It's one that I get often asked and um, resonates with me because I've now been doing this for 20 years. The real estate is not a sprint. It's a marathon and uh, experience matters. So that's advice I'd give young people today. And what I say to people, I have, I have different word. I don't say long game, play the long game. What does it mean that you have to do in your career to make it through that marathon? Any comments to that? Yeah, patience. I was going to say patience. Patience. <laughs> patience and understanding what you don't know. Mm. And I think that is very relevant today. Fair deal. Debbie? I guess because it's young people. Mm-hmm. I would say create strategic stakeholders in your success and be really intentional about finding mentors that are different than you. Mm -hmm. Some could be the same as you, but where you they can be outside your firm, where they can give you the guidance. They can be older. Sometimes they can be your same age and just a competitor. Some of my best mentors were, were competitors of mine. And and I think about over my career, I, I had my, I didn't even know the difference, however many years ago, between sponsorship and mentorship. But my, what I thought was my mentor was a man named Marty Edelman, who became my, uh, an extraordinary sponsor at every decade of my mm. career. And, and without him, I probably would not be where I am today. And I, oh, and who was he? He was the first real estate lawyer in 1985 on a transaction that I was doing. Your sponsors and mentors can come from many different places, but be intentional about developing them as stakeholders in your future success. Mm, it's beautiful. And take risks with those people to add, to be vulnerable exactly. to them for what they offer. The other thing I say to this long game perspective is also, it, and, and I'm a headhunter, so this is easy, but everything's a relationship. I touch so many people. I do my best to only be like a creep 20% of the yeah. time, right? Because <laughs> it happens in my business. But if you behave the way you, you know, the golden rule fits, because relationships are long and reputations are long in this right. business. And I want to just add one last thing, which which maybe, I don't know how you feel about it as a recruiter, but <laughs> I I always would say to young people, you know, it's kind of the, the, the follow on to patience. You might not be happy where you are. You might not be doing deals today. Maybe you're at a firm that can't raise capital. But before you go out and just make a change, I always hope in my own firm, but but I followed this, I would go to the my um, boss or my boss's boss and say, I don't see opportunity for me at this point in time. So I'm thinking about leaving. Mm 
or I'd like to explore other options, give your firm the chance to actually meet your needs before you determine that the only path forward is to go outside. And I think that I had mentors that told me that at critical points in time Mm -hmm. that really accelerated my career that maybe I would have left and gone into an investment, different investment banker. I maybe would have done something different. And so I think you get that wisdom of experience from your stakeholders and your success or from your mentors. It's interesting. One thing I tell people, very, very similar, but with a different spin to it is... Don't tell your boss you need a raise today. Say, hey, in five years, I want to get to this place. Exactly. All of a sudden, you're buying them into your future totally. pathway. It's the same thought. Exactly. And and then also, for the Ready remaining back. time you're there, I use my word, suck it dry. Get everything you can out of every deal, every interaction. You're not wasting your last moments right. anywhere. Right. Every moment counts. Totally agree. Great advice, Matt. Hey. Great advice. But, but this was your advice. Okay. Thank you both so much for this discussion. This was wonderful. We went this long, but you guys had so much to say. So thank you. Thank you. No, Thanks, thank you. Anil. Okay. Thanks, thank Matt. you, Deb. Thank you, Matt. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leading voices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.